Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. In this Australian Investors Podcast episode, I'm chatting to Renee Condolis, Senior Financial Advisor at Perpetual. Renee deals with high net worth individuals and families and charities. In this particular episode, I want to draw your attention to the show notes, where you'll find a case study. You see, I gave Renee a set of circumstances and a fictitious example, which she can then pull apart and put back together. As you'll find in this case study, There are all the usual questions you might ask a financial advisor who is as experienced as Renee. Things like the difference between unlisted and listed asset classes, whether to buy direct shares or whether to use a mutual fund or managed fund or an ETF. Which is better? Why? What does she think? You'll find the full case study in the description of this podcast episode. I encourage you to read that and then have a listen to what she has to say. I hope you enjoy this episode with Renee Condolis of Perpetual. Renee, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to be recording in person in Sydney. It's always nice. Yeah. Sun's out. Um, There is a bit of scaffolding going on across the road. So apologies, dear listener, if you do hear that. Um, There's not much we can do about it today. But we're going to be talking about uh, a bit of your story, how you came to be involved in advice and doing what you do. Then we've got a fictitious couple um, that have this scenario, which I'm going to throw at you. And I'm going to pepper you with a bunch of questions around things like charitable giving, setting yourself up for retirement, how you build a portfolio, and things of that nature. It's going to be a bit of fun. It's going to be quite conversational as well. But I actually do have a few uh, really cheeky questions, just short answer questions if you're on a test. Here at the start, um, I might ask for your best and worst investment. Oh, (laughs) Well, we'll start with the best. I would sure. say um, sort of in the heat of COVID, I was quite bullish on uh, some fi- finance stocks. So I went in and bought CBA, Macquarie um, and NAB and they paid me off quite well off the back of obviously the rally that we saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, worst investment, I would say uh, Magellan Global Fund. Uh, I actually bought it at probably the most expensive price that you could pay. Um, I was fairly green towards the investment world at that stage, and um, just through uh, you know 
other people's experience uh, with the fund and at that point you know it had was quite respected in the market I just jumped in and, and bought it at the high and of course since then uh, the price has kind of come off hmm. quite a lot um, on the merits of a few things but yeah I think my sort of takeaway and learnings with investment is you know where you've got a, a genuine um, interest whether it's in a company or a, or, or a fund um, tends to pay off because it's something that you watch quite closely and you have um, something that you stay more up to date with mm. and that's important particularly if you're sitting there making the decision of when to buy and when to sell yeah for sure um, so you're obviously a financial advisor now uh, you work here in Sydney uh, you've done a, a few things around you said you're in Ausbiz not too long ago um, you've done a few write-ups for ladies finance club and things like that I'm curious was financial advice something that you always wanted to do? How did you get into this? Yeah, it actually wasn't the the first thing that came to mind when I, you know, back in the sort of uni days, um, how it all sort of started was my old man was actually a futures trader. Okay. So at a very young age, I remember, um, you know, listening to, uh, seeing sort of in his office, this screen sort of flash red and green and the computer making sounds like buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. Um, <laughs> and I was so curious and intrigued around what exactly he was doing. So, yeah, I think, you know, um, at a very young age, I was exposed to financial markets. Then as I sort of got older, um, you know, with economics degree in school and then carried that forward with economics in uni. But um, I suppose you, know, you could argue that economics can be somewhat a little bit dry and I think uh, wealth management covers a lot of ground in respect to financial markets, mm. um, you know, the macro piece, but it also deals with clients and that side of it is what really attracted me to the industry. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of like a perfect balance between being able to, you know, make investment decisions, manage money, but then also ultimately sit down and build relationships with people and clients. So that's the bit that uh, you, you enjoy? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I love the markets aspect of it. I mean, there's never a day, there's never a dull day because markets are always changing and you've always got to be on top of that. Mm. Um, but I absolutely love the journey that you build with people and being a part of their lives and, you know, understanding how they're, you know, what's important to them and their families and all the sort of nuances around that. It all just kind of marries up together and, yeah, absolutely love it. Mm. So you um, work at P Perpetual today, right? Yeah. What what does a day a typical day look like insofar as like who are the types of clients that you're dealing with? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we work with quite a broad range of clients. I guess the consistent theme is, you know, typically they're quite successful individuals in what they do. Um, they might be executives of, you know, ASX 100 companies, um, you know, family offices, um, you know, retirees that have sold a business. So we definitely work with quite a broad range of clients um but we tend to sort of work in that high net wealth ultra high net wealth space yeah right so i imagine you get exposed to a lot of people that like you said have been successful in business or yep. even investing generally yep. and, and come from all walks of life that's really interesting because it'd be great to learn from them i'd imagine as well yeah absolutely um you know you, you get to speak to people that have done you know exceptionally well in what they've done and 
you know, a lot of them have great minds and yeah, they're literally the best of the best of the best of what they do. So they, you know, definitely teach me a lot of things that I don't know about, mm. um, particularly in their industry. So it's a bit of give and take, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can lean into it and then give your advice on structuring and, and long-term investing. Yeah. Um, so the big thrust of this episode and discussion today, the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about was basically – I've got this fictitious couple um, and I'll give you, I'll give you the rundown and anyone that's listening and you want to read this, I know this was super popular when we did it about a year or two ago where I uh, had some financial planners on and we went through a scenario. So I'm going to give this um, to you, Renee, and it's going to be in the show notes for anyone that's interested. So this is the scenario. Lois is 59 and Clark is 62. Clark Kent, for those of you that pick up on that, is uh, Superman. So they live in Parramatta. They have a $550,000 mortgage, two kids, 17 and 24. Lois is a journalist earning 110K plus super and Clark runs a private security business. It's called Super Protection Proprietary Limited, uh, estimated to be worth $5 million. The couple has approximately $1 million outside of super. um, And they've invested that in a smattering of things. You could Think like unlisted funds, licks, and a few ETFs and stocks, plus 210K for, for Lois and Super and 240 for Clark. Now, Clark believes he is a high risk investor and currently manages a portfolio of funds and ETFs himself. So he's just a DIY. Uh, Lois thinks she's more conservative to balanced, but Clark kind of convinced her to go high risk. Uh, and I imagine you see this a lot, Renee, but that's, mm. that's inside Super. And, she, and she's been happy with the decision because it's done well, I guess. Um, you know, 2022 might've been a bit volatile for them. The only major goal they have is wanting to retire within 10 years and being self-funded and debt-free. So they've obviously got that mortgage there, which is a thing against that. Um, They're not too worried about leaving much to their kids, but they would like to give back regularly and support their their children with their first home or or weddings and so on and so forth, probably in the next few years. They'd also like to travel modestly every few years. So I imagine like this is a, a couple that has a fair bit of money behind them they've got a business which is a big bulky asset they've mm, got a house mm. but it's got a mortgage i guess let's before we get to some specific questions here and how you would go um like about making formulating strategies can you just talk us through like someone presents like this what's what's the first step like in your advice yeah for sure like i mean there's actually quite a lot of good information here that you know whether that's obtained through conversations with the client um, or another trusted uh, advisor that they're working with. First and foremost is still having a detailed conversation with the clients around, you know, where they are today, what are their plans for the future, um, you know, what are their concerns, what keeps them up at night, and really start to build a clear picture of okay, this is where they stand today and this is what they want to this is where they want to get to in say five years time, 10 years time, and then, you know, play that out, say 30. So um, I think it's really important not to overlook that first step of having a very detailed conversation with the client um, or the prospective client. Once we sort of build out that picture and we feel like we've got enough information, um, you know, a sort of sub step in that is building out the balance sheet. So, you know, the scenario that you've given me, obviously we've got some really good information with respects to the mortgage, um, the value of the company. I think it's really important to understand what their um, what their cash flow looks like. And that's probably a little bit light in the information that we've got. So mm-hmm. really getting an understanding of how much they're spending today 
um, you know, how much they're saving and going forward when they say look towards maybe retirement or, you know, living in retirement, how much they might expect to spend because that is a really big challenge for um, for couples that, you know, during their working years, most of their time is spent working. So they're not actually um, – they don't have the time to sit there and spend the money that they're earning. But then when they ticker over to retirement, they've got all this time, but they're not actually earning mm. any more money in terms of their um, you know, employment. So, yeah, I think the the cash flow component of this is really important. And that's something that whether you would gain that directly from the clients or if they've got an accountant that they work closely with, we would build that out. Mm-hmm. Um And then follow on with basically a bit of a proposal of how we're going to help them and how we're going to add value because really it differs for every single client. There's no sort of cookie cut approach to personal advice. Um, We have a lot of levers. We've got a lot of tools that we can help clients with, but some will be relevant and others won't. So sort of sitting down after we've had the first conversation um, and putting forward, hey, this is how we're going to help you. Um, a high level idea of the strategy gives clients peace of mind that, okay, they can start to picture a plan and how they're going to move forward effectively to reach whatever goals they're trying to achieve. Okay, so you have a couple like this. I imagine if this is their first time getting advice, I'd imagine that there is often the chance that there's a mismatch in risk profiles, but also goals. So how do you go about untangling that? Yeah, that's a really, really good question, Owen. Um, There's no set way of managing that challenge. I guess it really does come down to how the couple see managing their wealth collectively together or separately and what we our, part of our role as an advisor is highlighting you know which assets are collective what's segregated as their own and managing it accordingly to the respective risk profile so we can definitely um, have multiple risk profiles across their asset pool okay um, there's no sort of set rule that you know, they're deemed one asset, one risk profile for their entire wealth. It can be segregated, but um, it's definitely encouraged to sort of have them on a similar page. It does make things a little bit more streamlined and easier in the future, but it just comes down to, like I said, um, how strong each client feels about whether it's their risk profile um, or even investment preferences. Like I've had a couple come through that, um, the wife is very, um, very conscious about you know, avoiding gaming, uh, tobacco, all that sort of nasty stuff. Yep. Um, whereas the husband is very much about the bottom line. So in terms of constructing the portfolio in that respect, we sort of sit there and agree upon which stocks or which companies can go in the, co- in the portfolio and which ones don't. Yep. Um, and we'll sit there and have deep conversation around each of those before we determine which ones go in and which ones don't. Okay. Would you say it's common for people to share like most goals or would you say there's quite a bit of individuality when it comes to this type of scenario? Um, It really does vary from 
individual to individual and couple to couple. So I see a lot of couples that definitely share the same goals and objectives. They're heading in the same direction um, from a lifestyle and just overall kind of, yeah, life perspective. Um, But then there's some couples that definitely have different interests and that will drive um, what purpose or objective they have for their funds. So, um, again, another example is that the husband's very interested in um, philanthropy and contribute uh, you know, community involvement and whereas the, mm. the wife is not so much. So um, it really does differ between individuals and, and couples. But again, part of our role is to be able to co- accommodate that. Mm. Okay, so here we've got, um, so at age 59 and 62, mm. um, and they want to retire in 10 years, they've got a 550K mortgage, but they've got a good amount of investments outside of that. Super's probably in my opinion, is probably lacking quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't realize I didn't put in um, a Clark's uh, income, but we know that his business um, would probably be profitable with $5 million of uh, sales or revenue. Um, they want to be self-funded. Uh, and if they've got a property like this and they've got a business, I guess the question is, those are pretty lumpy. Is there any... And those are, those stand out to me as big things. If we just think about this, would you say that, like, would there, would there be anything in particular you might explore with those two assets? In respect to the property and the, the business, the business, yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, we'd want to understand what the value of the property is in Parramatta, yeah. um, and I guess as if it is quite a large home. Um, you know, as they kind of get older, they might be thinking about the maintenance of that home. So there's definitely some options around one, potentially downsizing um, and making a downsized contribution to the super. It's a great way to accelerate super. Can you explain um, what that is? A downsized contribution? Yeah. yeah. So um, between the age, I can't remember the ages, yeah. um, and depending on how long you've held your property for, you can make a, a lump sum contribution to your super. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes in as a, I think it's a non-concessional contribution. Yep. Um, and each individual can contribute 300K each. So that's effectively 600K straight into super um, that, you know, once you move into pension phase, so long as you don't exceed the, um, the cap will be tax-free. So um, it is a really powerful tool to accelerate people's super that is, you know, mm. potentially quite low. I mean, the other option is, and I see this a lot with people that have, you know, quite sentimental or strong attachments towards the primary residence is potentially renting it out um, for income. And that takes quite a lot of pressure well, not so much pressure, but it, it contributes to income, um, mm. you know, as, as an asset that they're holding. So definitely two options there with the property. Um, with respect to the business, again, there are concessions um, through the sale of small businesses. Um, but I would definitely want to understand what, you know, Clark's intention is for this business and what his succession plan is. So, yeah, that's definitely um, the first step is understanding what his succession plan is and then advising accordingly off the back of that. We have a lot of people that listen to the show that run their own business. And uh, over on our other channel, we 
uh, the Australian Business Podcast, I spoke to a lawyer recently, a tax lawyer, and um, he was saying that there are some interesting, I guess, concessions up to $6 million for certain business owners to yep. transition assets. Yep. When it comes to doing something like that, so unlocking the value inside a small or medium business, do you, get, do you outsource advice for that? Like, do you get legal advice on that? We have in-house legal um, okay. consultants. So uh, one of the benefits or the strengths that we have is um, their family office and they deal with these type of clients every day um, that are selling their businesses. So, okay. yeah, that's something that we have in-house. Yeah, because I imagine that's a common thing, like whether the person wants to have one of their children continue if not yeah is there someone else that they can sell it to um you know maybe there's another an investor that would buy it yeah or even buy part of it that's a maybe a huge weight off in this case clark's shoulders given that he's got well they've got a 10-year window maybe there's time to do something there yeah do you think just eyeballing this really loosely do you think that they could maybe achieve their goal of say you know, like a, a reasonable income in retirement being self-funded? <laughs> Depends what you classify as a re- reasonable income in, <laughs> yeah, of in retirement. What, um, are most people, what are most people set as kind of a minimum, would you say? Uh, look, it again, it varies. The, you know, the type of clients that we work with, you know, they could be spending between 200 to 300K a year. Yeah, right. Um, so it, it is very different depending on, um, you know, the, the family. But I think the average would be a bit, be between say 80 to 90k a year yeah 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 do you think that a couple like this could maybe go close to achieving something like that yes i do i think with the right decisions made um and putting certain things in place would substantially improve their situation i think if they don't take certain steps it can cost them a lot um and would put a lot of pressure on their plan to be sort of self-funded and debt-free um but no, I, I do think, you know, assuming that at some point the sale of the business does occur and understanding what the value of the property is um, all up conservatively, I do think that they would you know, be able to achieve their goals. Yeah, um, which is great news for them. <laughs> so, so uh, like I've heard people go into financial planning, uh, into getting advice and they come out and they're you know, almost in tears because they didn't think that they could make so many simple decisions and make have such a profound impact mm. on their wealth. Mm. Um, I guess one of the one of the things that would be really interesting is like they've got obviously a mortgage which they probably want to neutralize before retirement, which they could. Um, is they've also got this big pool of assets outside of super, so it's around a million dollars, which they could also potentially do things with as well, right? Yep. Well, if someone did present with something like this, like a sizable amount of money outside of super, do, do any strategies pop into your head about what you could do? Yeah. So, you know, keeping in mind that uh, we typically advise uh, to pay down non-tax deductible debt. So yep. in the first instance, getting that mortgage down is the first step um, to take. Then outside of that, you know, the pool of money that you have sitting outside of super, there's two things to consider. One is how it's held and obviously what you hold. So, you know, if the couple are holding this in, say, their personal names, you would potentially want to explore what other entities might be more favorable for them from a tax um, effective perspective because there's no point in investing in 
a portfolio if your house is in isn't in order or if the ship's leaking because yep. it's just going to cost you in tax so definitely the structure is the first part mm-hmm. and then what we hold so you know i think there's the fact that they've mentioned here they've got some scattering of unlisted funds licks etfs and stocks probably want to understand you know what inspired them to hold those funds we're not going to kind of go through and recommend removing all of them if there's a purpose for them in the portfolio but really it's around you know taking a sort of sophisticated um a sophisticated way towards building a well thought out portfolio um and there's you know a a few steps and a few stages that you need to go through before we start recommending underlying investments in there yeah um uh, from memory i think there's um i think more recent uh, legislation, something, I don't know if you have this off the top of your head, so I might put it on the spot here a bit, Renee, but uh, with people who have unused concessional contributions going into super under a certain balance, um, maybe also something that, to look at. Yep. Yeah, um, because then my understanding is that it's basically like carry forward with that. So people up to a certain balance inside super can make the most of that. Yep. And yep. by doing so, claim a tax deduction too. Yep. So um that that's an interesting thing given their super balance is so low 100 percent, yeah you know particularly because they're not at risk of um breaching the cap yeah bolstering or you know accelerating the super is also would 100 percent be a, a primary focus as well particularly um before they hit retirement yeah um i'm hoping now we can kind of shift gears and imagine that we've gone through that initial stage where you've given them advice on the structure maybe the portfolio is like ready for like a almost like a blank canvas if you like um and so they're they want to get the as you said there's no holes there's no now there's no holes in the ship and the thing is ready to be built so over the next 10 years one of the things that i think a lot of even you know non-financial people are realizing is that the old way that we thought about building portfolios which was just bonds and stocks as a general kind of like two asset portfolio that's probably not sophisticated enough for a lot of people, particularly people like this, mm. where they might want different variations of portfolios. So like, or different, uh, I guess, assets, sub assets within that. How do you think about, build, how do you think about that? I guess in like a lot of the, the literature and all of the, the fund managers love to put 60, 40 portfolios on display and blah, 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 blah. Do you consider it through those two lenses of like risk on risk off or that, do you cut it up again? Like a friend of mine does four basically cuts into growth yeah. and defensive alts. Yeah. Um, we, on a sort of high level, definitely look at the portfolio in respect to attributes that contribute towards the growth um, sort of lens of the portfolio and then the defensive. But we do have sub sort of um, baskets or you know subcategories, mm-hmm. um, if you think about it like that. Um and then we do have sort of a, a, spa, a special asset class, um, the alternative assets that contributes to both growth um, and defensive, but it has its own asset class of it. Like it has its own asset class. Mm-hmm. So I would I would basically say that it, it is similar to the traditional 40-60 mix, but with an extra lens of um, alternative assets. Yeah, right. What are examples of things that normally go into that bucket? Yeah, so, um, you know, it could be something like private equity, um, private credit, infrastructure. Um, these type of investments can be quite 
difficult to get a hand on directly. So we will pick the best breed of fund managers and construct basically um, a fund to fund portfolio that gives clients access to these type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, they then they do tend to be fairly illiquid. So with respects to allocating money to this, uh, the conversation needs to be had that, you know, in terms of liquidity, it's not something that you'll be able to access overnight or in two days. Um, and I guess, you know, typically it would contribute towards between say eight to 10% of the portfolio. So in in that sense, it's okay. Um, yeah. You know, it's not kind of the uh, worst case scenario, um, yeah. but you know, all up what we've seen, um, particularly in recent markets, is that these investments have done what they're supposed to do. So, that, you know, they've generated returns um, that have operated, you know, uncorrelated to equity markets, which is really pleasing to see. Yeah, for sure. Particularly when uh, bonds are moving, in the, sa- well, moving <laughs> in the same direction as well, right? Yeah, I think that's hurt a lot of portfolios over the last 12 months for sure. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like... Uh, one we had uh, Will Hamilton on the show not too long ago, and he talked about well, we talked about like different ways to express views when building a portfolio. One of the things is um, the debate, obviously, with active versus passive. Mm. Um, and I'm just obviously there'll be there are different instances and different clients will have different preferences. But just from where you sit, is there a preference for things like like let's say we took global large cap? Is there a preference there, like global large cap equities? Look, we don't discriminate against either. We will take an active approach where we generally feel that the fund will deliver alpha above market. So um, historically, or when you look at markets, typically the developed markets can be more challenging to deliver alpha through an active fund manager. Um, But we have seen, say, in small caps, there is an opportunity to deliver alpha um, through active an active management approach, um, and that's because you know investors are able to get have a competitive edge. Whereas mm. with the developed ones, you know it's it's the news is already out there. Like a lot of it's already out there, and and it can be quite mm. challenging to really justify paying um, for an active fund manager when you know buying the market does does the job really well. Yeah. Um, how about versus listed and unlisted assets? How do you think about, like, are there particular markets where you, like, are there, I guess, particular markets where you might go unlisted versus listed? Um, and I guess just any kind of concept context around, um, why those would be unlisted asset classes? Um, so just to confirm here, when you say unlisted, you mean managed funds, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, even like direct uh, versus indirect exposure. So for example, yeah, we could have unlisted versions of like listed products, but even if it's going direct with um, like PE, you mentioned before, private equity, those types of things. Yeah. Again, I think um, what will drive that is the asset class. So for the alternative space, unlisted 100 percent um because that's where the opportunities lie um but you know if you think about australian equities uh, we prefer to go direct and in fact we actually prefer to hold the underlying companies um Mm. rather than the managed funds 
So that's something that we quite pride ourselves on. Um, we actually have an in-house direct equities team that sit there and go out and meet the companies, talk to um, you know the direct the, the boards and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I think it will it will be driven around the asset class and also the preference of the client. Um, you know, some clients have held direct stocks or have held companies and, and inherited comp- uh, companies from their parents and they have quite a strong attachment towards these companies. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, part of our role is to advise them appropriately on, on whether we think that they should hold, hold it or sell it. But we can also accommodate, accommodate that direct exposure um, you know, if, if we're buying and selling stocks in the portfolio. Mm. How about then, like one of the things that I'm getting a lot of questions on lately is hedged versus unhedged. Mm. Um, you know, late in 2022, currencies fluctuated, particularly the Aussie yep. dollar. Yep. Um, was real, like really sunk. Yep. Um, how do you think about that? Are there like any rules of thumb or like does timeline or time horizon come into account when you make yeah, this decision? Definitely the client's time horizon and their risk appetite. Um, that will definitely drive, I guess how much you would allocate towards hedged versus unhedged. The typical rule of thumb uh, that we use is about 50% of the portfolio. Um, But of course that will change again, like we said, depending on the horizon um, and the risk appetite of the client. Mm. Yeah, because this is one where obviously the hedged products often cost a little bit more uh, than the unhedged. So, yeah, I mean, what I've seen is that it seems to me the longer time horizon tends to skew people towards unhedged. Yep. Um, is that probably a fair assumption? Yeah, I would say that that is a fair assumption. Um, you know, in the short run, you sort of you're sort of looking for them to kind of offset each other. Yeah. Um, and you know, prices are moving around quite a lot, mm. uh, but in the long term, you know. If you make a strong stance on, say, hedged, um, it can definitely reward you in the sense of, you know, producing extra return on the back on the back of a currency play. So, mm. yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of specific questions here that I'd like to ask you because I know you have a lot of experience in this regard. And one of those is um, charitable giving. Mm. So in this scenario that we had, um, the couple was quite keen on giving uh, and i imagine there are like different ways there are different ways to do this some people like to give when they're immediately others over time others after their time is up you know yep. so i guess maybe generally speaking how do you how have you seen how have you gone about this in times gone by yeah for sure so you know there's like you said there are many different ways that people can think about giving to communities um you know some people just like to make a donation mm-hmm. uh, others want a bit more structure a bit more you know formal framework around their giving and also you know the level of involvement not just now but over time that they have with the community so when you think about the different structures that you know we can set up for families or individuals that are you know probably a little bit further down their um, uh, community involvement, uh, there are different structures such as a PAF, um, what does that a, a private ancillary fund, oh, yeah. which is what, you know, in layman's terms is a private foundation. 
Um, we also have um, endowments. So that's where you kind of sit in between making a donation, but not really ready to set up your own foundation. You can give uh, X amount of money that is held basically um, with Perpetual and they invest the money for you. Um, it's like I said, it sits, sits in between sort of that direct donation and you know having a, a, a full fledged private foundation. Um, so, what would the is there a tax benefit to that? Like with the the yeah. endowment being that is, is it would it be a separate legal entity? It's ba yeah, it would be a separate legal entity, um, and it basically can offset your tax liabilities. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, you know, benefits in respect to, uh, you know, tax, tax benefits. Yep. Um, and yeah, the actual distribution is tax free. So it helps, um, you know, clients that tend to sit in that high net wealth space. Obviously the intention isn't from a tax, uh, mm. tax perspective, but it definitely, um, definitely sweetens it as well. For sure it does. How about um, charitable trusts? Is this something that you've come across or have any have had involvement in the past? I don't think we've ever mentioned them on the show. Um, look, I haven't had too much involvement with the charitable trust. Our, our clients tend to have the private foundations. Um, you know, they looking to sort of give with, um, they're looking to be a part of communities over a long period of time. And therefore, they feel having, you know, the private foundation where they're dis distributing um, directly to these communities works best. It also gives them more control around, um, you know, the values that they want to set for the um, for the foundation, how they want their family to get involved, because really, this is a really uh, this is a very powerful way of um you know, thinking about how your children and your grandchildren are going to get involved with making financial decisions. Um, so, you know, what I've seen in the past is uh, a couple that are sort of looking to bring their uh, children into making decisions with respect to the significant wealth that they have. And the way that they've done that is actually through um, their foundation first mm -hmm. and then over time you know once they've come up that sort of education curve involve them in other decisions outside of the outside of the foundation mm. um so a lot of people listening to this will be would probably this probably seems like a different um planet to them but it definitely isn't for you so i mean like when you deal with clients um that have created a significant amount of wealth um, whether it's through business or, or whatever they do. Are there some sort of, I guess, challenges and or opportunities that come with having, say, $10 million versus $1 million? Yeah, so, okay. So, basically, the, op the opportunities that come, you know, uh, with someone that has about, say, $10 million to invest is it opens the door to, I guess, investments that you wouldn't necessarily uh, be able to invest in if you were, say, a retail um, investor. So, you know, the things that we were talking about before in respect to the un unlisted investments, particularly in the alternative space, um, you know, those are definitely opportunities that you know, clients with 10 mil can access. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but then come, obviously, there is a, a, a higher degree of liability with that degree of money. So 
I guess the challenges that, you know, part of why we're employed to work with these clients is, you know, the, the structuring, um, you know, the tax liabilities that they face. So having a strong team around them, you know, whether that's your financial advisor, your accountant, your legal um, consultant, working basically hand in hand to make the right decisions, um, both from a return uh, perspective, but then also a, a tax perspective as well. Yeah, because like you said, the liability is not necessarily like when people are here, they probably think legal liability, but there's a lot of downside too, right? Like preservation becomes ultimate. Absolutely. Yeah. What I typically tend to find, um, you know, clients that have significant wealth uh, tend to be a lot more risk adverse yeah. than clients with, say, uh, one mil to invest. I think, you know, they've worked incredibly hard to, um, you know, build say the successful business that they're now looking to say to sell and really what they want to do is protect that capital first and foremost so mm. you know our investment philosophy is literally protect and grow and first and foremost it's around protecting that capital so you know you won't see us ever investing in any anything too exotic because you know at the end of the day clients want their money um, in a safe pair of hands yeah for sure they do hey so this brings us probably to the end of the conversation. Um, I'd love to pick this up again uh, in the future, but if people wanted to reach out to you and uh, find you, uh, you know, and seek out your advice, where would they go to do that? Like, is there a, a way that people tend to get tend to get in touch with you or? Yeah, um, definitely via LinkedIn is a, is a great way to make contact. Um, I'm also happy to provide my email address on yeah, the- In the show notes. Yeah, show for notes. Sure. Um, for sure. Or yeah, just, Give me a call. I'll provide my contact details as well. Yeah, great. And you'll find all of that um, of how to get in contact with Renee in, in the show notes. So, yeah, I really appreciate you taking some time to join me across town here uh, in the office with a bit of scaffolding going on in the background there. No, it's been great. And uh, I, I'm guessing a lot of people that listen to this that are in a situation where they've got businesses and they've got substantial assets like property and that, and they're thinking about retirement. I mean, there's so much low-hanging fruit that can be you know, harvested and made into mm -hmm. something really special for people. So, uh, yeah, just thanks for taking some time to share your wisdom with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.